Welcome to Internet Misfits, a podcast that explores new, exciting futures and the people building them. We focus on creators and entrepreneurs who see the world differently. I'm Joe Cohen, your host and the founder and CEO of Universe, an app that lets anyone build an amazing website and online store with just their phone. In this podcast, I try to get at the essence of our guests' unique ways of seeing the world and understand really what makes them tick. My hope is that you leave with new learnings, tools, and inspiration to build out your own dreams. Let's dive in. Today, we've got Mike Mignano on the podcast. Welcome, Mike. Thank you, Joe. Hello. Pleasure to be here. (laughs) So Mike is the he, he founded a company called Inker, which was a mobile, at first, uh, way of creating a podcast that ended up selling to Spotify and became this really ground-up platform for democratizing audio and really set the bedrock of a lot of Spotify's podcast strategy. He then worked there for a while. He is now a venture capitalist. We won't hold that against Cliche him, Cliche path. <laughs> uh, but Mike's had an amazing career exploring creative tools, business, and really at this intersection of you know creativity and commerce that we like to explore here. So you know today we'll explore a bunch of these themes. We'll we'll go deep. We don't know exactly where it'll go, but it'll wander. We're recording from my place in New York. So welcome, Mike. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Very excited. By the way, you said Anchor was mm. a podcasting platform. Still is, I should add. There you go. It's now owned by. So what a is Swedish company what is, called Spotify? <laughs> so what is Anchor today then? It, it's still what it was when we sold it. I mean, it's it's the world's largest podcasting platform. It's um, as you mentioned, it's it's available on mobile. Anyone can download the app for iOS and Android. Tap a button, launch a podcast within minutes. But it also has a strong web component as well, which you know is used by some of the biggest podcasters in the world mm. to launch and host and monetize and and all that good stuff. So. How did it come to be? I mean, let's just dive in, right? Yeah. How, 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 the idea of making a podcast on your phone, uh, now it seems to me pretty obvious, but like I'm sure when you started, it was a weird idea. Like how did it, how did it happen? So Anchor, the idea for Anchor came from, uh, so, so my co-founder and me, my co-founder Nir Zickerman, we were working at Adobe after the company we had been working at, Aviary, was acquired by Adobe. So I was running product at Aviary, Nir was leading sort of backend server engineering, and we got acquired by Adobe, and we were working at Adobe, and while we were there, podcasts started blowing up, right? Podcasts had been around for a long time. They sort of famously came about around the time of the iPod, right? Hence the name. But they never really broke through to the mainstream until around 2014, 2015, when a little podcast called Serial came out, uh, which sort of like burst through to sort of the broader pop culture landscape. And I think people realized that there was this new format that was really rich and interesting, and you could download it on your phone for free. And it sort of thrust podcasting into into the spotlight. I, I actually remember, I think there was even like an SNL skit about Serial back then. And to me, that was like the moment that podcasts arrived, right? It was like, wow, like podcasts are on SNL now. Well, Nir and I had tried to make podcasts ourselves and kind of found that the whole process was really kind of technical and challenging and expensive, right? Like you need an expensive mic, you needed to know how to use complicated editing software. And it stood, the whole process stood, I, I think, in stark contrast to what we had just done at Aviary. So Aviary was a photo editing platform in the form of an SDK, a software development kit, and an iPhone app that made it 
ridiculously easy for anyone, whether it be the two of us or, you know, my mom or my a grandparent or a kid picking up an iPhone or an iPad for the first time to be able to take and edit and share beautiful photos with a few taps of a button. And again, podcasting was not that. It was kind of the complete opposite of that. And given that that podcasting was becoming so popular and we felt like it was only going to become more and more and more popular, we thought, well, maybe there's an opportunity to make audio creation and sharing much, much easier. Now, even though podcasting was sort of the inspiration, I think the first, you know, the, the, the original vision for Anchor was not that it would be a podcast creation tool and platform. It was hey, audio needs to be social, it needs to be shareable, po you know, podcast as a format is too dense, it's long, it's hard to parse. And so we got started hacking away on effectively like what kind of felt like Instagram for audio, right? It was like a feed of short form audio clips, you know, asynchronous sort of consumption and then interaction with the content from the listeners. And yeah, that's sort of like the founding story of it and how we, we got started building effectively. Yeah, I think Universe shares a little bit of that story with Anchor in that Universe became a website builder, but did not start that way. It started as almost like this social network for quote unquote websites with right. these like little interactive screens. And it's it's interesting how, you know, we start with these ideas and then you fit them to market in yeah. time. Yeah, totally. I mean, so 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 the first few iterations of Anchor, you know, we were trying so desperately to get people to create and consume this content in our own proprietary ecosystem, right? Within Anchor, within the Anchor app. And we, we actually had quite a lot of success getting people to create content inside of Anchor. It was kind of cool that that idea sort of got validated pretty quickly that, oh, actually people do want to create audio on their phones. But what we quickly found, well, the first thing that we quickly found was that the content that was being created without giving people compelling tools it was kind of bad. Right. Like the, the content just wasn't good. I mean, right. it was like, it was like these short form two minute audio clips. Yeah. We didn't give people tools to edit. We didn't give people tools to like make it sound better. It was just not interesting. We eventually fixed that problem. We gave people a bunch of tools and, and effectively gave them like superpowers. Right. Mm. But then the problem getting back to this point of, um, you know, building a, in our own sort of proprietary ecosystem versus breaking out was that, these things started to sound like podcasts right? and nobody wanted to download a, an app called anchor that had only the podcasts from the people that were making with anchor versus downloading Spotify or, or Apple podcasts and listening to every podcast in the yeah. world for free. It was like, why would I go to anchor to listen to some brand new podcast when I could listen to everything else in the app that I'm already using? Yeah. Right. We had a very similar journey, which was like, you're making these, we, we called them cards at the time. And, you know, you, you can make these really amazing cards, but they're only visible in the universe app as a, a sort of social network. And we had a compelling way of making these cards, but the fact that only people in the app could see them inherently limited the appeal of the creative tool itself. So I think, you know, the, what we're exploring here is the connection between distribution and creative tools. And uh, I'm curious for you, like, you know, how did you realize that? And how do you think about distribution and creative tools. Yeah. I mean, distribution is everything, right? I mean, if you take one of the most popular, you know, if not maybe the most popular social network ever, or one of them, let's say Instagram, in hindsight, there's a very sort of like proven tactic there in that, you know, they built this really, really great tool 
but to get distribution for the content that got created with the tool, they had to tap into existing channels, right? So, you know, if for those of us that maybe were around or for the listeners listening that were, remember those early versions of Instagram, people were sharing these photos off platform. They were sharing them to Twitter and they were sharing them to Facebook. And, you know, there was this sort of like famous showdown between Twitter and Instagram when when the links got turned off inside of Twitter, right? But it had worked and it helped them sort of drive distribution for this really interesting tool and format. And I think when you're building a new product, you, you kind of, and, and we had to learn this lesson the hard way, you, you have to find those distribution channels. Yeah. Otherwise, you could have the greatest content and tools in the world, but if nobody's getting the content because you don't have any distribution, it's sort of meaningless. Yeah. So I was reading, uh, you wrote about the creativity supply chain recently. Awesome post. Thank but you. in it, you talk about supply or at least the, the creation side, demand or the consumption side, uh, the toolings, you call them superpowers. But- I'm curious for you how you think about distribution in that context, which is to say, if you have many more creators, how are people finding those creators, Whether whatever the medium? Yeah, I can tell you the Anchor story is sort of an example. So with Anchor, again, we had figured out that people did want to make this content in a new way, in an easier way. But we also realized, well, shit, we have to find a way to distribute this content. And so we started thinking about like, well, what are the potential distribution channels by which we could get this content out into the world? And I mean, maybe in hindsight, it sounds pretty obvious, but it was podcasts, Mm. right? It it was the channels for podcast consumption that already existed. Again, like we mentioned, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So then the next question was, well, how do we get our podcasts into these players? And is that even a good strategy, right? Like to just throw out this content into the world on effectively other companies' platforms. And to sort of answer the first question, the way we did it was like extremely manual. We actually, maybe taking a quick step back, the way that podcasts work is that they're distributed via RSS. Mm. So Apple Podcasts and Spotify effectively like ingest RSS feeds, like the same thing that, that powers like blogging from 20 years ago. And then they distribute that content. Actually, they don't even distribute it. They effectively just point at the host server and the owner of that content, whoever, you know, wherever that person, the creator is hosting it, that serves the content and distributes the content to the listener. So what we did is we realized that with Anchor, for everyone that was creating content, we would create an RSS feed in the background. We wouldn't tell the creator because our whole view was like the creator doesn't need to know about an RSS feed. That's too technical. Our users just want to make audio and they want to get it out there. Who cares about the RSS feed? And then what we did was we had a team that would take the RSS feeds and manually submit them to Apple Podcasts, to Spotify, to all the different platforms. Again, the creator had no idea this was happening. And once the platforms accepted those RSS feeds and approved them, we would notify the creator and be like, congrats, your podcast is now live on Apple Podcasts. I remember using Anchor when I think you guys first did this. There was no way of knowing that a human had done it. It felt like this automated thing and it felt magical because of that. Yeah, exactly. There was a delay. Yeah. You know, it was but like, it felt like it was a processing. Exactly. Delay, exactly. Know? It was like, great. Like you're, yeah. you're, you're I don't know podcast. what, I don't know how podcasts get <laughs> yeah, exactly. submitted, you know, exactly. like your podcast is being submitted. Like we'll let you know when it's live. <laughs> and then within an hour, you know, sometimes it was longer. You yeah. get a notification. It's like, congrats, you're live. Yeah. It was very funny, but it worked. I mean, it was like you said, it was a bit of a magic trick. Was there a podcast that kind of broke out that was produced on anchor? There were lots. And, you know, it's funny now, like if you look at the, and obviously when I was working at Spotify, like we would know pretty well, like which podcasts on the charts were powered by Anchor. But Mm. 
I mean, now, like if you looked at like the top hundred podcasts, like in the, in the charts, like many of them, really, including like some of the biggest, I, I don't want to like violate any creator's privacy and like say where their, their content's hosted, but like, let's just say many of the biggest shows in the world are, huh. are, are powered. And by are they here. using the mobile app or the web? Uh, uh, it web depends. Editor? I would say that many of the, the biggest shows are, are using mostly, I would say the web yeah. experience, at least when I was still there and working on it. And the reason is, so the anchor mobile app is really a tool of democratization, right? It's like somebody that doesn't have access to the expensive equipment, right? Which again was like effectively the whole the whole point, the whole you know the whole idea behind the mission of the company. But you know, if you take some of the top creators in the world, they have very very complicated uh, production processes, right? They they record in studios with guests, and they have producers bringing the guests in, and everything is seamless and has to sound really 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 perfect. And so they're often creating the content in other tools. And then they're uploading it to Anchor on the web. And then we're helping them with, well, I say we as if I still work there, but um, Anchor is helping them with with distribution, with, you know, monetization, analytics, marketing, things like that. So I'm curious about that. Did you have that more advanced tool before Spotify? We did have a web tool, but I think most of our efforts at the time were still going into mobile because that was the whole idea behind our strategy. Our strategy was we, we felt we could effectively win the market of podcasting by vastly growing it, right? So when we started Anchor, there were something like, you know, a couple hundred thousand podcasters in the world. And then by putting putting the app in everyone's hands through their phones, there were effectively millions and many millions of people creating podcasts. And the vast, vast majority of those were powered by Anchor. So the strategy was really around the democratization. But as we started to, to gain market share, um, as we started to think, hey, how do we turn this into a business? It was like, hey, well, we realized we need to start moving up market and also enabling some of the biggest creators in the world. So our strategy was really around aggregating all the content and monetizing it via an ad network that we were building and then which eventually got powered by Spotify once we got acquired. And we felt like to do that in the best way possible, we really needed to have some of the biggest shows. Um, and that's why we started moving up market into the web. Mm. So interesting, it, it, and there's so many parallels between the universe story. And oh, I should yeah. I should add that Mike is an investor in universe, <laughs> um, full disclosure, and, and an, you know an early one. But for us, similarly, we want to grow the the market of website builders, of internet builders. You know, there are eight billion people on Earth. There are five billion people on Facebook, but there are only three hundred million registered domains hmm. on Earth. I didn't know that stat. Yeah, that's interesting. And, 300 million registered domains. Yeah. And that doesn't even mean 300 million websites. Of course. Yeah, so, most of that's probably like 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 domain brokers and stuff. Yeah, so the market of websites is yeah. still actually in its infancy. Yeah. Cuz there should be many more websites than humans. Totally. Right. Everyone should have at least one probably, at least right? One. Yeah. And so what we think about at Universe is sort of growing that and, and that democratization. But we also think about, okay, how do we support people who are then successful with a website if they're starting a store and they're growing as a business? How do we scale with them? Yeah. But it's always a negotiation, right? Because there's infinite things that you can work on when you're making tools. There's so many opportunities and juggling the needs of creators who are just getting started with those who have pro use cases is challenging. How did you think about that balance? I think it's all a matter of, I mean, not to like say a really technical businessy term, but like resource prioritization, right. right? Like when you're a small team and you're 20 people, 
or less, you're 10 people, you need to focus on where you can have the most impact. And yeah. right. And for a small 10 person team, it was, Hey, let's, let's work on a problem that no one else is working on. Cause that's where we can win instead of saying, Hey, let's build the best, most polished, most premier, most high quality podcast editing tools for the biggest creators in the world. That was a, that was a highly competitive space. It right. was already happening, right? Like we would effectively be going up with logic or pro tools or, and, and on the hosting side, other, you know, big, big podcast hosts that had effectively were being monetized by like huge armies of salespeople, right? So it was like, do we want to go play in that crowded space or do we actually want to go play in this other space that no one else is really thinking about because on the surface, it looks like it's not interesting or valuable or useful to the world. We believed it was, right? And then the whole idea was once we had figured that out and we had sort of like proven out that part of the strategy, then we could grow such that we could hire more people and have a bigger team and take on more scope to our strategy and start tackling other parts, right? So I think it's, it's always sort of like this, this push and this pull around where to play, where to build, what is the sort of unique thing that your company or your product can do in the world that some other company isn't. And you know, if you look at all the best companies in the world, this is kind of what they all do, right? They start with something very narrow and specific and they become the best in the world at it. And then they leverage strengths that they built by becoming the best in the world at that one thing to go into something else, right? So, you know, Amazon is like the classic example that comes to mind for me, right? They, they said, we're going to be a bookseller. Like we're going to be the best online bookseller in the world. And then once they mastered that, they're like, well, now you, using all the infrastructure and the distribution we've, we've created, we're going to ladder into selling everything, right? And we can sell everything now. And then once they did that, they, you know, they said, well, now we're going to make it more efficient to sell everything. We're going we're gonna to come up with this subscription program called Prime, right? And they ladder into a brand new business. And then, you know, and obviously we don't have to name them all, but then they ladder into infrastructure, yeah. infrastructure and web hosting. And then they ladder into, you know, media, whatever. Totally. Like, and by the way, there are countless other examples. I mean, just look at Google, look at Apple, like all these companies follow similar paths where they, they become the best in the world at one thing. And then they leverage some of the strengths that they created to be the best in the world at one thing to do many more things. The interesting part of that, there's an inherent tension in a way, which is, and this is something I think a lot about and that we're thinking a lot about at Universe, is if you think about a company like Amazon, when we think Amazon, we think like unlimited ambition. Mm. Like that company is boundless. However, to achieve that ambition, they've been actually very focused or like very small in their ambition. Like let's just be a great online bookseller. Yeah. And let's, you know, and then move into these adjacencies. So I think it's actually hard because ambitious people often want to boil the ocean at the start. And it requires almost like a humility and a discipline to totally. say, no, we're going to sell books. And then we're going to, you know, sort of expand that scope. And honestly, that's a, a lesson that I'm still learning day to day. It's like, how do we actually reduce our ambition now and get better at that smaller thing? Yeah, it's it's hard. It's it's a hard thing, especially for you know creative people such like like yourself and you know most most people that are building companies are probably creative people in some respect. And creative people have ideas, and creative people want to go chase those ideas and those yeah. dreams. So yeah, it's it's tough to to fight off the temptation and uh, and just stay ruthlessly focused on one thing. I think the thing that carries me in this way is the idea that you sort of earn the next card, right? Mm -hmm. Like by 
mastering one step of the process, you get permission to expand. And I think that's a very alluring carrot, right? That's a good reason to limit your ambition because then you get to do more over time. Yeah. So how do you think about, you have a front row seat in the world of business and in the world of technology, but you also have a front row seat in the world of creators, of creative people, of artists, of people who make things. What are the similarities you see between sort of entrepreneurs and artists? And what are some of the differences? And I'm curious, are there things you think each can learn from each other? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I mean, for me, the conclusion that I ultimately came to was that they're, they're sort of one and the same. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's sort of a cop-out answer, but- No, um, I agree with that. I originally identified as more of like an artist growing, or I wanted to be an artist, let me say. Let me say that. I wanted to, you know, growing up, I wanted to be a musician. Like that oh. was my that was my dream. Like I was a drummer. I played in a bunch of bands. I sang in a few bands. Like all I wanted to do was be a musician. I wanted to be a touring musician. I wanted to be a recording musician. At some point, really, when I went at, went away to school, it was like, ah, oh, this is this is too risky. Whatever. I did the safe thing. I got a CS degree, and and also like, even though I wanted to be a musician and I did and I played a lot of music, I probably wasn't good enough, right? And so. I, I, again, I, I went into technology. I started coding. I actually like immediately after I left school realized I hated it or I mm. thought I hated it and I thought I made a mistake. So I did a 180 and got a job at a record label, Atlantic huh. Records, building artist websites. And for a while, that's where I felt at home. Like I felt at home helping artists, helping the artists on the label, you know, in some small way, create their art, right? But then the iPhone launched. And when the iPhone launched and the App Store launched and it became clear that anyone in the world could build a piece of software and with the tap of a button distribute it to millions of people right into their pockets, that was a light bulb moment for me. For me, that was that was when it was like, oh, wait, software is art. Software right. is actually not that yeah. different than music, right? Totally. It's like, it's kind of the same. Yeah, and, and by the way, on that point, Apple in the beginning used the Rails from the iTunes store to distribute apps. Totally. Yeah, yeah. It was. It, I mean, it, for them, it's very easy to see how it was a very similar yeah. business strategy, right? And and that's when I actually said, okay, I did. I, you know, I've, I've done my five years at Atlantic. I, ha- I had a great time. Now I want to go to a startup. Like mm. that's the new version of a band. Like I was in bands growing up. Like now I want to be a. That's cool. Right? <laughs> so I went to a startup. And the cool thing about startups was, again, like as a musician, I felt like I was never really good enough to make it. And I think it's because as a musician, you have to be insanely talented at your at your craft. And I'm I'm good. I'm a good drummer. Like I've played in bands. I've you know I've played at like some venues that I loved visiting when I was growing up. But like I don't think I'm I'm good enough to like be a full time musician. Uh, but the cool thing about startups is you can be good in lots of different ways. And I think this is maybe what enabled me to be a founder. Like I'm not great at coding. Like I'm not a great designer. I'm an okay designer. I'm not a great designer, but startups, like you can succeed just by bringing the best people together. Yeah, exactly. Synthesizing and, uh, sharing passions and, or a mission with a team. Like, and I think, I think I realized like, that's kind of what I'm good at. I'm totally away from your question right now, but the whole point was the whole point of my the whole point of this long-winded answer is like I actually think they're one and the same. I think artists and what, what was the question? Entrepreneurs or yeah. business people? Like I think business is creative. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, Do you think that someone who 
who wanted to be a musician in the classic sense could approach it more like a startup founder? Uh, increasingly so, yes, because I think uh, it's becoming possible to be creative in music with, I, I don't know, some people might get mad at me for saying this, but I think it's becoming easier to create music with less natural born talent. Yeah. Right. Like, How so? Well, cause now you can program music, right? Like, and, and many, and many of the world's biggest artists do exactly that. Right. You don't, I mean, again, there are probably people that are going to get mad at me for saying this, but like, you may not need to learn music theory or be like a classically trained pianist to be a great musician anymore, a classically trained guitarist. Right. I think the process of creating music is becoming democratized. And so, you know, I think the answer to your question is yes. I think there are applications or lessons from, you know, startup or business building in 2023 that probably can be taken or probably are, are being taken to, to starting a musical career nowadays. I mean, I don't know. Like, did you see like the Billie Eilish documentary? No. It's pretty cool. Uh, it's on Apple TV or whatever. I don't know. I kind of feel like her and her brother, Phineas, like, they have like kind of startup vibes yeah. to them, right? Like they wrote and created the whole album in their, you know, the first album, like in their bedroom or in, you know, Phineas's bedroom yeah. on the computer with like, it, it felt like they were almost building a piece of software in a way, you yeah. know? So yeah, I think the answer is yes. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I grew up DJing and mm -hmm. into kind of house music and techno and did it through college. And, and then, and, and one of the reasons I was really into it was because it was sort of the intersection of, computers and music, yep, right? Like, exactly. you know, and you, and UI in so many ways, right? Like totally a DJ rig, a console, it's just like physical UI. Totally. But also though, you know, I don't have any background in music theory. I, I actually don't know most of it. And the software like lets you do interesting things with it. And it, it lets you be creative at another level. Yep. So how do you think about a world where we bring down the barriers to creation, which we're doing um, and has happened dramatically. Like, it seems like you'd have an exponential increase over time in the amount of things made. Mm -hmm. Paint a picture of that future in your world, in your view. I think I'm very excited about this. I've, I've long been very excited about this concept that you're talking about right now. I mean, this notion of democratizing creativity is, is not a new one. I talked about, you know, how that was a, a goal of anchors, but like, the internet and software has been doing this for many, many years, right? I mean, think about publishing on the internet yeah. 20 years ago or more than 20 years ago. To, to publish the written word on the internet, let's call it in the late 90s, was hard and complicated. And then tools like Blogger and WordPress and eventually Medium came along and it became a lot easier and it led to an explosion of writing and publishing on the internet. And arguably Twitter and Facebook took it even much further by democratizing the format even more, making it short form, mm. distributing your content to your friends via social graph. And I think it's hard to argue that, uh, and now I'm putting sort of like my VC hat on, yeah. an enormous amount of value was created in, in, in the process, right? The same thing happened for photos, right? We talked about photo editing earlier in the, in the conversation, but you know, before Instagram, I think most, well, let's go even further back, before Flickr, right? Like what was it to take and edit and share and, you know, photos? It was really, really hard. You know, you're, most people were doing it with film, right? And then going to the local, you know, photo developing center and, and, and printing physical photos. Then digital cameras came along, then Flickr came along and all of a sudden you could share photos on the internet. 
But then Instagram came along and said, oh, actually, it's a thing now anyone can do on their phone. You can just tap a button. You can take a, a beautiful photo and share it with anyone in the world. Um, and that was really powerful. And once again, an insane amount of value gets gets created in, in the process. Video, same thing. YouTube, TikTok, et cetera. Debatably, but I'm biased, audio as well through through tools like Anchor and then maybe on the music side, some of the other things we've talked about. So I think there is an enormous amount of value in the abundance of media that gets unlocked through the democratization of creativity. And I think we're standing on the edge of like, like a tidal wave of democratization of media through obviously AI. It's funny, we talk about Instagram and we talk about YouTube and, and you know, whatever, Facebook and Twitter and the changes that they brought to, to media and the creation of media. But I actually wonder if like that's just scratching the surface of what we're about to experience yeah. through AI. Yeah, because in some ways those platforms I had very rudimentary creation tools, but very sophisticated discovery tools yes. that were probably the bleeding edge of AI in the last decade, yeah. right? Like the Facebook algorithm, the Google algorithm, the YouTube algorithm, uh, those are like the, they, they have been the preeminent machine learning models. Yeah, exactly. And now we're applying that same idea to the creation of new new things. Yeah, and I think I think AI and machine learning it's it's going to be really interesting to see how they get optimized both on the creation side and the consumption side yeah. as you know, I think right now everyone's talking about the creation mm -hmm. side, right? Companies like stability.ai and openai with Dali and there there's a lot of talk about creation tools, right? Powered by AI. But I think there's, we're also going to have to start talking a lot about the discovery tools powered by machine learning and AI, which, by the way, have been around for a while. I mean, Spotify has been doing Discover Weekly for a long time now, right? And I think all of the social media platforms in the world right now are, are shifting more towards what I call recommendation media, right. where the distribution is powered by AI, not by your friend graph. However, if there's like an absolute explosion in the amount of content that exists in the world due to AI – then we're inevitably going to need more and more and better machine learning and AI to, to parse it and distribute it and discover it. And uh, I think it's pretty easy to, to sort of take sort of a cynical view and just say, well, it's just going to be TikTok cranked up, right? And it's effectively just going to just result in, you know, whatever drives the most clicks or the most ad revenue. But I think, I think there's an opportunity for platforms and people to potentially leverage AI and machine learning to help them discover the, the type of content they want to discover. Mm. Right now, the business model is all about advertising such that the content that is the most engaging, whatever that means, ends up being the content that's discovered. But if there are new business models put forth on the internet that support people's abilities and, and needs to discover the content they want to discover, then I think the future is bright for AI and ML when it comes to content discovery and distribution. There's like unbounded potential. We need the algorithms. Uh, I think the business model needs to be tweaked such that the people want the algorithms. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I'm fully with you. It's almost like if you have uh, exponentially more things created, which is amazing, you need tools that help you sift through the noise. Mm -hmm. Like they go hand in hand. In a way, like the first sort of exponential content platform was the web. And the web for its first five years or so was missing Google. And then Google came around to help you navigate and find stuff on the web. So it's always a dance between like the creation of new things and then our ability to 
find stuff within that. But how do you think about this notion of like an echo chamber, right? And like the algorithm giving you more of what, what you want. The flip side of that is that you're just surrounded by what you know. Yeah, I think, well, I think this is what comes back to the business model, right? I think if the business model is primarily advertising based, then the end result will always be the thing that drives the most universal sort of like global consumption. I think that's why TikTok, to their credit, it's like so addicting, right? Because the model is tweaked such that the thing that is the most engaging and the most interesting for the largest number of people effectively wins. But I think if you have different business models, and and to be clear, I don't know what they are. <laughs> I don't know what the model is. Otherwise, maybe I would, uh, I would not be a VC. I'd go back to the building side. <laughs> I think the business model ultimately needs to be in service of the consumer such that the consumer can tell the algorithm what to do for them. You know what but I mean? Like if you, if you think about even, even with that yeah. direction. So let's just take music for a second. Sure. I feel like there's so much more music created today than there was mm. 40 years ago. And for me, like, that's amazing because like, let's just take the world of electronic music. There's so many subgenres that have been created because the tools have been democratized. So let's just look at house music. You've got ambient house and psychedelic house and deep house and more commercial stuff. And there's like a hundred different subgenres of yeah. house. What that enables is you to go really deep, but also you can go broad. And so, you know, with tools like Spotify and Apple Music, you can actually scale the tree. But I think that going broad depends on the user actually saying, I want to go broad. Yep. It requires almost like a curiosity about what they don't necessarily know. Totally. So do you think that in a world where a user has control over their algorithm, they go broad? And even in like the political sense, like do you think people are curious about other perspectives naturally? I think they are. I think I, I'm I'm optimistic that people mm. are. Well, that that's that's talking about mostly the, the political side. Yeah, but yeah. But 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 even on the music side, but I think in, in each of these instances, someone needs to design an experience. And, and by the way, it's probably just as much about the user experience and the tools as it is the business model, which I've been talking about, to help someone understand the possibilities mm. that are out there for them, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like right now, the feed just happens, right? Like right. the feed just sends you in a direction. Yeah. But one of the cool things I've, I've realized about AI, which I didn't realize even six months ago, is that, and, and I think stability is the thing that, that has really sort of turned me onto this, thinking about, thinking a lot about stability is like, you can actually train your own model, right? Like stability right. In, in particular is really cool, stable diffusion, because yeah. it's an open source model that can exist, that's very small, so it can exist effectively on a client, on your phone, it's not in a server somewhere, and you could effectively personalize mm. it or train it, in theory, to you mm. and, to, and to your personal tastes. Mm. And I think that as a concept yeah. is probably going to be a big driving factor for exactly what you're talking about. Like people having control over their model, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever that means. Maybe it's, maybe it's you, Joe, and you want to go really broad on music and you want to discover all the different things, uh, all the different subgenres of house. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's me and like, I just want to go really, really deep on like one specific 
type of, um, I don't know, astrophysics or whatever, you know, I don't know. I don't know what it is. And I think, uh, I think this, this notion of building experiences that gives people the ability to like train their model to their interests again, which needs to be supported by a new type of business model is likely to be a driving force for navigating like the abundance of content and information on the internet. The way I think about this in its best case is the model or the AI becomes like a helpful friend exactly. that really knows you, but a, a helpful friend when they're showing you something cool doesn't show you just stuff you already know. Right. They were like, hey, it's like- taking input from you. Yeah, it's, and it's, they're also like, hey, like, I think you're going to like this film. It's totally different than anything you've ever seen before, but I just think it's going to resonate. Right. So I, and it asks yeah, you, it asks do you, you. want, do you want right. to try this new thing? Right. Which again, like, I don't think experiences are- designed like that right now. Mm. I think experiences right now are just designed for least friction possible, maximum engagement. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. That's exciting. I think, I mean, who, by the way, who the hell knows, right? No, but I I think you're right. I mean, I look, I think there's so many aspects of our lives, whether it's like the things that we like, quote unquote, read or consume and the things that we make. But this idea that like we have a, call it an assistant, but really in some ways it's like a mentor or a friend or an advisor. And I think, I, I I don't think this is like a departure from what computers have already been doing. I think it's just the next evolution of yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. It's the next step. AI is not really new. Like we already have AI. We've had it. Like AI is always the next frontier of computer intelligence. Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm going to simplify this and I'm sure the AI experts listening are, are going to like probably not like what I'm about to say because I'm probably overly simplifying, but like, you know, what ChatGPT is doing is effectively what Google, the Google search box has been doing. It's just on a much, 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 much larger scale. Imagine listening to a podcast and not hearing an ad for a website builder. You'd be like, what kind of podcast is this? We know you need your fix and we're not going to deprive you of that. At Universe, we believe websites are the main event, so of course we'd sandwich one in between our show. Here's the deal. Websites are dope, everyone needs one, and they can actually be fun to build and have some personality behind them. This is the part of the ad where I rattle off a list of all the things our website building product can do for you in hopes that you choose Universe over the competition. Create sites, build stores, analytics, email shipping off from your phone feels like playing with Legos, all that good stuff. We got it. I mean, you can make sites so good you'll shit yourself, but that's just brass tacks. At Universe, a website is so much more than just something you hear about on a podcast commercial. It's an extension of self. It's a way to interact creatively with the digital world. And we're hell-bent on helping the internet live up to its full potential. A more eclectic, more electric place. Because the internet shouldn't just be a space for squares. Grab a domain like .xyz and show those .com boomers what the internet's all about. Head to Universe. That's universe.se, but the dot is silent. Punch those puppies into the app store, my friend, and we'll see you out there. So I want to go back to Little Mike, who was oh, really, geez. really into, <laughs> wanted to be a musician. Yeah, sure. Little. Tell Mike. me about that. Yeah, like what, what, what was the ambition there? And like, where did it come from? What did it feel like? Why did you want to do it? You know, growing up, I, I was into a lot of different things. I enjoyed listening to music. I, you know, there were a bunch of sports what I was kind really of music? into. Uh, I, you know, so I grew up, I was born in the 80s. I grew up, you know, in the 90s. So yeah. 
I definitely was like a grunge kid. I was yeah. into grunge, um, you know, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, yeah. Sound, like all the, all those bands. But I had a lot of interests. I was also into sports. I was into baseball. Yeah. Where'd you grow um, up? I grew up on Long Island, mm. about 60 miles from where we're sitting right now. By the way, I, so, so even though I had all these interests, like I didn't really have what felt like talents or mm. like passions, I guess, until I think it was the fifth grade you know, they're like, what, what instrument do you want to play? Cause I don't know where I grew up. You had to play, you had to take up an instrument. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think the year before that, or maybe two years before I took up the saxophone and I was, I wasn't good at it. And I don't know, I didn't have the patience to, to invest in, uh, in learning it. And then, so in the fifth grade, I took up the drums. I just, I don't know. I saw somebody playing the drums. I thought it was cool. And it was very, it, be, it came very natural to me. I had some sort of innate talent mm-hmm. for drums. Again, I'm not, I'm not good enough to be a professional musician, but you know, I could sit behind a drum kit and in the first lesson, you know, I'm, I'm like playing like mm. for real. And that was intoxicating to me playing the drums and being like decent enough at it that I could make a lot of noise and keep a beat. And that just became my whole world. Mm. Like I just wanted to play. I wanted to play drums. I wanted to listen to all the music that I just mentioned. Who I wanted did to you love like as a drummer. Yeah. I was a really big John Bonham fan yeah. when I was like, like I, I mean, I still like Bonham. I think he's just solid. But, you know, as I grew up, uh, this is kind of cliche, but it's so true. Like Danny Carey, I think, is like the greatest drummer ever. Ooh, I don't even know. Uh, he's a drummer for Tool. Very, 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 very impressive. Uh, Neil Peart from Rush. Obviously, these are cliche answers, yeah. by the way, if you ask like, you know, people that are into drums. Um, <laughs> But uh, that's what I was obsessed with. I was obsessed with music and, and drumming. And I dreamed of, you know, being on stage in front of, you know, 100,000 yeah. people at, you know, whatever giant stadium. Did you uh, like the performative aspect of it? Loved it. Yeah. Loved it. What did uh, you like about it? I don't know. There's just, there's just like no feeling like it. Like yeah. being, you know, you and your buddies, like being on a stage in front of people who are, into what you're what you're doing and and just making a lot of noise yeah. and like exerting all of this both physical and creative energy into what you're doing uh, I don't know it's just it's uh, there's a ru- it's a rush you know it's uh, it's intoxicating so I just love that and uh, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world to to be a professional musician but I was also into computers and I didn't I wasn't like at first I wasn't programming I was just again I grew up in the 90s so you know we had like we had all these like old school Windows machine, you know, Windows, uh, what was it, 3.1, Windows 95 on like these Intel, like yeah. 386 machines, whatever. And uh, it seemed like the technology was just advancing so quickly that like, you know, we would get a new computer every couple of years. And it was just, I don't know, it was just cool. And uh, and so I learned how to program Visual Basic. And I don't know, again, that was that was another, not related to the music, but it was this other side of me that inspired me and, hmm. and, and, uh, and, you know, felt like an opportunity to be creative. Inca was your first startup, right? Mm-hmm. How did it compare to the experience of doing a band as a kid? Yeah, it felt the same. Hmm. And I think that's what drew me to it. It felt better than like, so playing a band, playing in a band, maybe especially pre-internet, right? <sighs> it felt like there was only like, there wasn't much you could do. Like there wasn't, you kind of had to get lucky. Right. Or, right. but the cool thing about building a startup was it felt like there are no rules. Mm. 
and you and you just you just get to make it up and you have this thing at your fingertips called the internet mm. that you could use to to try and do anything right like i don't know you probably feel this way with the universe especially in the earlier days like you're just making it up mm. like there's no playbook yeah. yes there are some tactics that have worked some that haven't but it's well in the case of me it was like me and my co-founder and for you it was just you um, a couple of people that like are inspired by what you're you're building and you come into a room every day yeah. you know which is similar to like with a band in the garage and it's like what are we going to do today it's right. like whatever we want right like that i don't know that that i just loved i loved yeah it totally resonates and i think there's like a punk nature 100% and 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 i felt that at first when i joined aviary that was like my first taste of that mm. you know i was working at atlantic records which was awesome i loved working there and being around musicians mm. uh and by the way like you know super successful record label one of the most iconic record labels ever. So we're, we, you know, I worked in like really nice office and cool space, whatever. Then I joined Aviary and it's like, <laughs> we're working in this like crappy office that's right near Penn Station. We got robbed three times within the first year I was there. It was gross, but I loved it. Right. It felt punk rock. Punk rock's a yeah. great way to explain yeah. it. I mean, at first it kind of freaked me out. I was like, whoa. Right. This is this is what it's like to work at a company when yeah. you don't have all the comforts of like, you know, this yeah. this this corporate uh, success or whatever. But I loved it. It was it was just I I learned very quickly that there are no rules and we and we and we do what it takes and we make it up as 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 we go along to achieve our our mission. Yeah. To me, I feel like if you look at the realm of startups, they're getting more creative over time. Like you also have tons of like quote unquote, not creative startups, like more enterprise sure. companies. But I just feel like startups are getting weirder in a good way. The range of possible startups is expanding. And to me, what gets me excited is actually thinking about, you know, how far can that go? Like, could you have a band that is a, really a startup in the classic mm. sense that raises money from venture capitalists? Mm. Like, how do you think about that? And like, to me, I feel like the, the missing thing there is that these worlds don't often talk, mm. right? Like you've got the software and business world and you've got the art world and the, and the music world and whatever. And you happen to be a person that spanned both of those things, but almost like as a fluke of it, your totally. interests. How do you think we broaden the possibilities of software, the scale that comes with it to you know, creative people in the more traditional fields? I don't, I don't know if this is a super direct answer, but I, I do think, and I swear this is not just like a plug for universe, but I think, I think it is tools like universe and other tools that democratize the creation of X or the access to X. Cause I think that is what sort of like removes the barriers that enables worlds to like yeah. flow, you know, f flow into one another. Yeah. Cause you don't have to be an expert in writing code to yeah. make software. I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, there's this other company I think is really, really cool. And again, disclosure, I'm a, I'm a tiny angel investor in it, but it's called acquire.com. Mm. Do, do you know this? No. It's a marketplace for startups to sell themselves, huh. right? It's like, it's m a in a box. Yeah. And that's a perfect example of like, if you could build, and not just, by the way, not, not just talking about big startups, also small bootstrap businesses. Yeah. Like, you don't need to know anything about how to sell your business, yeah. but you can go to this marketplace, acquire.com, and they walk you through it and you can sell your business, yeah. right? And so now all of a sudden, somebody that is not in the world of M&A or venture capital or mm. the whole startup ecosystem 
has access to that type of opportunity where they may not before. It's just one specific example, but I but I think it like helps helps illustrate the point much in the same way that maybe Universe does for someone that maybe needs a website to for their band, let's just yeah. say, or their shop or whatever. Yeah. But they but they didn't go to school yeah. for web development. They don't know how to build a website. They don't have the budget to go pay a web developer or an agency to do it, but now they can. And yeah. now they're in that world. Yeah. So I, I think it's I mean, it's funny how we're sort of like tying it all back to some of the earlier parts of this conversation, but I think it's about software and access and tools and creativity and the power of technology to remove barriers. Yeah. And I think you and I are actually like case in points of this because we're not like assembly programmers. We're not like, you know, computer science PhDs, but we both built software businesses. Yeah. And those businesses in their nature are at the intersection of creativity and software. And that's in part because that reflects our own experiences. But the fact that the tooling existed for us to create those businesses allowed us to make products that were not purely technical. They were interdisciplinary. Yeah. And this is why I get so excited about companies like, you know, whether it's Universe or Webflow or this company Replit now has this thing where anyone can can code through it. I just love yeah. software and businesses that enable people to do things they couldn't do before. Yeah. And that's when the world starts to get more interesting, right? I like to think about software the way that I we were talking earlier about how, you know, you had this realization that shipping an app was like publishing an album. Yeah. And I like to think about software as like the economics and flexibility of media mm. with the power and mechanics of a machine. So it's like, you know, in a, in a previous era, if you wanted to make a machine that made clothing, you had to build this giant machine and it was physical and you had to send it somewhere and then you, someone would have to pay a lot of money for it and then they can make clothes. Now you're sending the machine. You're sending the machine and it, yeah, it doesn't cool. cost you anything to send it. Right. Like to make another copy of that machine is free. Yeah. Like I can send the universe app to someone, they can download it for free and make a website for free. And they have a, a whole like really sophisticated machine on their phone. And the same is true with like, with Anchor, you basically shipped a recording studio. Exactly, yeah. And for free. Yeah, <laughs> it is crazy when you think about it. And, and by the way, we, uh, we think about, the, the, the general public thinks about media distribution in that way. We think about media distribution as effectively free. Like we understand, people who aren't technical understand that like sending a song to someone is free. And, and so that's why the, the price of media has gone basically to zero. But, the power that software gives is we can widen the aperture of what media can do to be actually functional and interactive. And so to me, what I get excited about is thinking about, okay, let's just take the medium of audio. Mm. Audio is still like a pretty static medium. Like even with something like podcasting, you download the podcast, you listen to it. It's not interactive. Yeah. How do you think about that kind of thing? Do you, have you thought about like interactive audio? Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. I mean, we didn't really get into this in the anchor story, but that's, that's why we wanted to, have everything exist within our own proprietary mm. experience because the format and the infrastructure of podcasting through RSS yeah. was such that what you just said was not possible. Right. Literally was not possible. RSS just, it's it's like a broadcast medium, right? It just yeah. pushes the content at the listener. Like you said, you just download it. And so the idea with Anchor and you know the earliest versions was it was very interactive. Like you would listen to these two minute things, you would respond, then other people would respond. You could share these things. They would sort of unfurl and integrate with Twitter so you could listen on Twitter. 
But again, the problem was we just couldn't build up a critical mass of both creation and distribution or consumption in the same place such that that idea could work. And what we're talking about here is actually, fast forwarding a few years here, was the reason behind the Spotify acquisition. And we've talked about this before publicly at Spotify and whatnot. Basically, Spotify came to the realization, Spotify had the same ambition, by the way. They wanted to make the format of podcasting much, much, much more more interesting. But they couldn't because they had the listening side, but they didn't have the creators or the creator tools to be able to put the two pieces together and therefore go around the limitations of RSS. We had the exact opposite. We had all the creators and we had the creation tools, but we were relying on RSS to distribute. So by Spotify acquiring Anchor, we could effectively put the creators and the tools on the same software stack as the listeners and the consumption, and we could build much, much more interesting and and equitable experiences. I mean, this is how we were able to innovate on monetization in a big way and and unlock monetization for so many more people. This is how we were able to, at Spotify, do things like question and answers. And by the way, on Spotify, like you can do, this is now sounding like an ad for Spotify. And I actually, I don't work for Spotify anymore. I have nothing to do with the company anymore. But but you can do a lot of really interesting and and differentiated things on, on Spotify that are unlocked by the power of having creation sit right next to the consumption. Yeah. That gets me thinking a little bit. This is a bit technical, but I think we're seeing now a real hunger in the tech world for decentralization. People talk about it as like blockchain or crypto, but really what we're talking about is ownerless protocols, protocols that are not owned by any one corporation. And the truth is that like podcasting through RSS is built on one of those protocols and it's incredibly interesting. The web is one of those protocols. Email is one of those protocols. And that is increasingly compelling because we don't want to be hostage to a, cor- a single corporation. But it seems like a lot of these protocols are one-way streets. So they're like you said, RSS is a broadcast medium. Any thoughts on like protocols that are two ways or how you Yeah, do that? so it's interesting you bring this up. I, I actually wrote a piece about this mm. called The Standards Innovation Paradox. Mm. And it was basically a reflection on this exact observation around RSS and what we ended up doing at Spotify. Standards are great. They're amazing for kickstarting a medium or kickstarting a technology because it enables many, many different stakeholders to come together around a common language, right? right? And so if if I'm a if I'm a developer today and I want to put a new podcast consumption app out into the world, great. Just base it on RSS and I can immediately ingest all of the world's podcasts into my app. The problem with standards or the or the paradox of standards though is that standards can always change, right? But because they're so easy to adopt, it means a lot of people yeah. adopt them. And by a lot of people adopting them, there's there's effectively an agreement among right. everyone that this is how the thing right. works. Right. And so if you come along and you're like, well, I want to change the thing, yeah. everyone else is like, no, nah, we're good. This thing yeah. actually works just fine for us. Yeah. So it, it creates this, and you know, I, I sort of like draw this, this chart in the piece, but it, it effectively creates like this quick slope up mm. in terms of innovation, but then it flatlines. Right. Because it, it just there's like this stalemate that exists right. among the people in the community. And so the way that I think we've seen companies break out of this, although maybe to your point, it does effectively come, it, it often does come at a cost in that a single entity ends up sort of being the decider mm. of the format. But I would say the best outcome I've seen such far is that 
the single entity that is able to gain distribution, gain like a distribution advantage can innovate on the format, but they also maintain backwards compatibility, mm. right? So, you know, this is maybe this is a bit of a controversial example because some people will think it's the greatest thing in the world and other people will think it's awful is, is iMessage, right? iMessage enables, iMessage is, is effectively built on top of a standard, which is SMS, but then it enables a bunch of amazing innovation on top of mm. the standard, right? If you and I are texting on iMessage, there are lots of really cool things we can do. We can send disappearing messages. Mm. We can, you know, unsend text messages. We can send voice notes, whatever, all these crazy mm. things that don't work on SMS. But we can also text people that are not on iPhones and it'll default back to SMS. Mm. So it both innovates on the standard without breaking the standard at the same mm. time. Yeah, I think the missing step there, by the way, and this is, I don't know that companies have an incentive to do this, but to me, what happens with something like iMessage is then, yeah, innovation continues, but it only continues by Apple. Yeah, So that's, that's the problem. So you almost want like a re-protocolization. Yeah. Like you want a Spotify to say, hey, like we have invented a new kind of podcast and now it's a new protocol but it's not necessarily in their corporate interest or at least their short-term corporate interest. Yeah. I, I would argue that it is in their long-term corporate interest, but it's interesting because in some technologies, this happens. Like, you know, Apple created WebKit, which is the backbone of web browsers, including Chrome. And it also happens with hardware, like Apple and a consortium of, of other companies introduce USB-C and that gets adopted. So it doesn't seem like it happens from smaller companies because it's harder yeah. to do. But I do think this idea of like protocol innovation is finally entering the lexicon of software. It is. It definitely is. I mean, I think this was a big topic, you know, probably heard it more about a year, year and a half yeah. ago than you, than you are today with, with a lot of the hype around blockchain and Web3, right? The thing is, the thing that I always try to wrap my head around, though, is like, how do even some of those examples not end up in the same place? Yeah. Right. Um, again, these things are changeable. These things are always changeable. They can always be forked or yeah. or changed. Or, but like the moment you fork it or you change it, you sort of lose the benefit of the thing. Yeah. And so that's that's something like I think about a lot, and I'm I'm curious to see who can sort of figure this out. I think that what we need more than a technology is a literacy around mm. the creation management and then like iteration of protocols. Yeah, that's Like we're talking about this, but this is not actually a conversation that happens that much, even in our industry. Right. Like we think about either you're open or you're closed. Well, yeah, because our, indus yeah. our industry is effectively a, a capitalist industry, yeah. right? Quite literally, you know, all yeah. of the biggest companies are, are backed by, you know, they have financial backing that is meant to drive financial returns for yeah. For I'm, investors. A, I'm a, you know, I'm excited about Web three and crypto. I'm also a skeptic. I think the most interesting aspect is it's forcing us to think about yeah. protocol creation. Yeah, I agree. Whether or not those use blockchain or not, I agree. So, okay, you're now a VC, yeah, and you have a front row seat at the future in some ways. What's exciting you? Like, what's the punk rock VC doing? Yeah, I mean. The punk rock VC. Yeah, you're, you're now the punk rock VC. <laughs> wow, thanks, Joe. Yeah. That's cool. Um, I mean, we we talked about it a bunch in this podcast, so you know, apologies for being redundant. But I but I am I am genuinely excited by AI, and I think it's easy to get excited by any hype cycle. And AI is most certainly a hype cycle. But I think you know a lot of the previous hype cycles in technology and VC over the past couple of years, they didn't get me fully excited because 
it wasn't super obvious that value would be unlocked in a in an interesting way, both from a you know a capitalism standpoint, but but maybe more interesting to me from like an actual cultural standpoint as well. I think the exact opposite is true for me with AI. Like I think it's very obvious to me how AI is going to change things. I mean, we just talked about a bunch of the ways, right? Mm -hmm. AI is going to democratize creativity in a way that we have never seen before, mm -hmm. and that's going to change everything. Mm -hmm. Just to wrap up, what's one project that inspires you that you'd recommend? I have three off the top of my head right now. Number one is uh, I just saw Tar, which I know a lot of people are talking about right now because um, yeah, I, I, think, it's, too, I yeah. think it's up for a bunch yeah. of Academy Awards. And I was kind of blown away by it. Yeah, I, it was one of the most thought-provoking films I've seen in years. I was a big, uh, I was really into like Stanley Kubrick films growing yeah, up. And obviously, like, he passed away a long time ago, so there hasn't been a Stanley Kubrick film in a long time. This felt like that yeah. to me. It was, like, very harrowing and introspective and thought-provoking and ambiguous and, like, beautifully well-made. Um, I just I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. So that's, that's a movie or a film. I noticed you had Chantel Martin on the podcast. Yeah. I love Chantel Martin's yeah. work. I'm a collector of hers. I think she's incredible. And... I, I won't like rehash some of the things that you actually touched on with her about her process that yeah. I have always found to be really, really cool yeah. and interesting. So I definitely recommend that. And then a friend recommended to me this artist on Spotify called City of the Sun. Mm. It's a different type of music than I am normally used to listening to, but uh, I've just been getting totally lost in it. What so kind of music is it? It's like guitar based. It's almost like mm. uh, it almost has like a bit of like a Mexican sort mm. of sort of sort of vibe to it. Mm. Uh, no vocals. It's very cool. Cool. Yeah, yeah. All right, Mike. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, thanks for coming. I feel like I've, I had like a podcast veteran. Like, <laughs> you know, you're not just like a veteran guest. I feel like you're like a historical figure in podcasting. Oh, wow. So this is an honor. That's, I'm, well, it's an honor <laughs> to hear you, you say that I am uh, a historical figure in podcasting. So thank you very much for having me. This was awesome. Yeah, let's do it again sometime. All right. I'd love that. Thanks for listening to Internet Misfits. I hope you found the conversation inspiring, helpful, energizing, and insightful. You can find me on the web to continue the conversation on my personal site, joe.universe, which is joe.univer.se. See you out there. Bye-bye.